0: Let's pray. Father, we ask that you open our minds and our hearts to hear from your word today, that through it you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that we would be drawn closer to Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to be in 1 John tonight. Uh, This is, of course, the Lenten season. It's a season of repentance and confession and reflection. Uh, it is also, First John, is also a passage that we say part of almost every time uh, we're here together. Whenever we take communion, uh, this passage or a piece of this passage from 1 John is part of the comforting words. And so it seemed to me to be appropriate to actually take a look at what that little passage actually means. We're going to cover a lot of territory tonight because I want you to get the full grasp of what is being said by the disciple John. But first I want to tell you something. One of my fondest and funniest memories of my time at my previous church where I was a a pastor for 10 years. Uh, One Sunday morning, it was a fairly typical Sunday morning. The pastor, the senior pastor was preaching and I was sitting in my usual place with my family on the front row just about right there. And uh, at some point I heard crying behind me coming from the congregation. And that Isn't that unusual? Children cry all the time. I didn't think anything of it. And then, after about 30 seconds or so, there began to be a lot of rustling and a lot of movement and a lot of whispering and a lot of gasping. And clearly, something was wrong, so I decided to turn around and take a look. And there's an older gentleman in our congregation named Joe West. And Joe West was, in some ways, a stereotypical Western Pennsylvanian. He was very German and very no-nonsense, a place for everything and everything in its place. Uh, he harassed me the, my first four weeks at the church because I could not remember his name. And every Sunday for my first month, he would ask me what his name was, and I could not remember. And he scolded me for a month straight until I remembered it. And I'll never forget it. Joe died uh, not too long ago. He was upwards of 95 or 96 years old. I turned around to see what the noise was about, and the crying was coming from Ruth, Joe's wife. Joe had passed out in the pew, uh, fallen completely over out. And uh, I decided I should go back and see what was going on. It happened that we had a doctor in the congregation named David. David got there first, and by the time I got to the back where Ruth and, and Joe sat, I heard David say, I can't find his pulse. And he was starting to do chest compressions and try to revive him. And I looked at Joe laid out on the pew, gray as a ghost, and I thought, Joe just died in church. I really thought he died. And so I decided, well, we, we, obviously, we need to call 911, which, by the way, I used to never carry a cell phone at church because I didn't want to be disturbed by the electronics in my pocket until the day that Joe almost died. And then I decided I should carry a phone just in case. So I called 911. It takes the ambulance about 10 minutes to get there. By the time they get there, Joe has revived. He's sitting up, he's talking, he's not feeling well, but he's okay. Clearly, he, he was out of immediate danger. Turns out his pacemaker had malfunctioned, and his heart really did almost quit. And that's why you couldn't find, we couldn't find a pulse on him. So, at this point, church is over, okay? I mean, like, like we're not even doing church anymore. The, the sermon, we just stopped. And the music director got up and started leading hymns because obviously we can't all be turned around staring at what's going on. So we're trying to, like, pray and, like, be respectful of of Joe's near death. Um, And... And, and so we get, we get out of church, and the, the paramedics, they get him out of the building. They have him in the ambulance. I decide to go to the ambulance, check on him, make sure he's okay. I get there, and there's David, the doctor. And I hear David saying, Joe, you really need to go with these guys. You really need to go get checked out. Um, something's wrong, and you need to get it checked. And Joe is saying, I'm not going with them. I'm fine. Look, I'm talking. I'm sitting up. Everything is fine. And David, the doctor, looks to me, the pastor, like I'm going to have medical advice. And I said, Joe... Joe, I said, I'm no doctor, but I thought you were dead. And you need to go with these guys. And he looked at me and he said, Pastor, we're supposed to go to Bob Evans. (laughs) You got to have priorities. And when you're 93 years old, if you want to eat sausage and eggs right after you nearly die, whatever. Um, But here's the point, though. Joe... Joe did not really want to know what was wrong. It scared him. It scared his wife. He wanted to go on and pretend like everything was okay. Like there was nothing wrong with him. And he was in a state of denial. And this is of denial is something that John is addressing in this passage. Denial of sin, the things we don't want to look at. But I have to give you a little bit of background to this first. Uh, Most scholars agree that there are a group of heretics... Uh, ha- that have infiltrated John's congregation They are probably Some sort of proto-Gnostic I don't know if you know much about the Gnostics but and, and there's a wide range of Gnostic belief But in a nutshell The Gnostics believe that the god of the Old Testament Was actually an evil demiurge And that everything he created that was physical Was itself corrupted and evil And was going to be destroyed And that the only thing that really mattered was your spirit Finding a certain amount of Enlightenment to to raise your spirit up to a level of a new kind of knowledge, a new kind of gnosis. And they were called then the Gnostics. And so it's widely believed that there's some sort of proto-Gnostic group at work here that has infiltrated this church, and they're starting to spread some teachings that are leading the people astray, and John wants to address them head on. Part of the problem, too, is that John uses a lot of metaphorical language. He uses light and dark, logos. In the beginning was the word. He, he uses a kind of language that if someone wanted to come in and twist it, it's not hard to do. And so there's some belief that that's what's happening. That these false teachers are taking John's words and they're twisting them around and they're leading people astray. And he needs to set the record straight. And so he makes three statements that are probably references to the false teaching that's being promulgated here at this church. So the false teachers are making three claims that he needs to address. You see this, because he'll say in verse, I believe, 6, 8, and 10, if we say, and he goes on, he's repeating something that's being said in the church. Let's read. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And so he starts off right off the bat explaining what he means by light. Uh, This is the message that God is light. And light in the Bible typically means one of two things. And both of these meanings are in play here. One of them is that God is the revealer of truth. Light shines into the darkness. Light by its very nature can only shine. And by its very nature, it illuminates things that are otherwise hidden. And God is revealing because he is light. He is revealing his holiness. He is revealing his character. He has told his people who he is and what he expects. He is revealing truth. The psalmist tells us that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The light is telling us something about the world as it is and about God as he is. But light also has a secondary function in Scripture. It it refers to uh, it's a symbol of absolute moral perfection, light versus dark, good versus evil, and both of these are at play here with John. He's saying that the light reveals what is true, but also gives us an idea of what is good. And so what we see is that the light not only helps us see, but the light in Scripture also shows us how to walk. It's a bit like when you go camping, if you've ever been camping, and you try to hike at night, and you have your little headlamp on. If you don't have a headlamp, I highly recommend them. You have your little headlamp on, and and it's shining out into the darkness. And that headlamp in the darkness will show you that there is a rock there. It will show you bare facts. Here's a rock. Here's a log. Here's a creek. But that light also informs you about the safety and about the path you need to take around the rock or under the log Or over the log. Or to avoid it altogether. So the light is not just about bare fact. It's about guidance. About how we're supposed to live and where we're supposed to go. And these false teachers were first saying this. Verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You see, it is the property of God to shine himself into creation. And these false teachers seem to be saying that they didn't need the light to shine into their lives. That they didn't need to be exposed to the revealing truth of God. They were, in fact, walking in darkness. In a nutshell, they were not confessing. They were not repenting of anything. They were essentially saying, we have fellowship with God. And we have no need to repent of anything. And they were therefore walking in darkness. And John's point is, if they are in fact walking in darkness, refusing to repent, refusing to confess, refusing to allow the light to shine into their dark places, the kind of places that make us ashamed, the kind of places we're embarrassed about, if, you, if, if a person is refusing to allow the truth of who God is and the truth of his holiness and the truth of, truth of his righteousness, refusing to allow that to shine into his life, he is, in essence, walking in darkness. And he cannot then say that he is walking in light. Because it isn't true. Because the light shines in dark places. And so, he's hiding. And he does not have fellowship with God. But he offers a, a refutation in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. John doesn't just say, walk in the light and you'll have fellowship with God. He takes it one step further. Walk in the light and we'll have fellowship one with another. And why is that? Why is that? Here's here's what I think he's getting at. That when we walk in the light... That is, to accept God's righteous self-revelation and confess our sins, confess who He is as, as right and true and pure, and confess who we are as sinners in need of a Savior. When we walk in the light with other people who are walking in the light, it actually changes who you are, and it changes how you interact with other people. I don't know about you. I've been in a few churches where a lot of people pretended that they had no sin. Now, maybe if you asked them, they would say, oh, yeah, I have sinned. But you never quite knew what the sin was. You never quite knew how it played out in their life until you saw them being really nasty to someone else who they thought was a worse sinner than they were. Uh, Because once you have taken on the mantle of self-righteousness, you are, in fact, walking in darkness. And it, in fact, breaks down fellowship. Because, Because our fellowship is based in the fact that we all equally together come to the light because we need the light to shine into our lives. Like In this church we're not united because we share political opinions. And that is thankfully true. This is a very contentious season and I happen to know that there are a broad range of political opinions in this congregation. We're not united because we have common interests. Some of you will mention uh, 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 something about poetry and rhythm and rhyme to me, and I'll probably think you're talking about science fiction. I won't know. And others of you don't know the difference between a hat trick and a three-pointer. Like, you don't know. And so you don't share these interests. And that's okay, because that's not what actually draws us together. What actually draws us together is that all of us here have acknowledged that we are in darkness and we need the light to shine into our lives. And that's what unites us. That's what brings us together, even when we disagree on a host of other issues. And John is telling his people that if you're a person who's saying that I don't need the light and I'm fine, what you're actually doing is bringing destruction and disunity to the body. And the only way we have unity and harmony is when we come together and acknowledge our sin and walk in God's self-revealed righteousness about himself. And let that sink in and guide our lives. And what happens then when we walk in the light? We're cleansed from all sins. Not just forgiven, cleansed. It is washed away, it is taken away. We actually do become different kind of people. We actually are being transformed. And so to participate in Christ's blood is to participate in his life. And it makes us a different kind of person than we've ever been before. And so the first false claim is that we don't need the light We're just fine the way we are. And oh, by the way, we think God's pretty cool. And so we're we're good with God and he's good with us. It is simply untrue unless we accept what God has said about himself and what he has said about righteousness. Simply untrue. There's another lie that they're saying. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, the word there is referring to the, the state of sin, the sin nature. If we're saying we have no sin nature, we deceive ourselves. Now, maybe these false teachers are making the claim that, um, that sin can no longer reach their souls because sin is just a matter of the flesh and the body. And it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. I can sleep with whomever I want as many times as I want. And it does not matter because my body will ultimately be destroyed anyway. What really matters is that my soul loves Jesus, right? Right? And so maybe they're saying that my soul has reached a place that it just can't be touched anymore. And so I don't really have a sin nature because that's just part of the body that will be destroyed anyway. That's a false teaching. It could be that they're saying they've attained a certain level of enlightenment. They've attained the gnosis and that their sin has been eradicated, that they're no longer capable of sinning. And I happen to know some Christians who believe this, that you can, they call it the second work of grace, that you can attain a certain point in your life where you no longer sin. And uh, I've heard a story about a man, and the way it would normally work in some of these circles is, is... when you think you've kind of broken on through, they call it breaking on through because you're really working hard. Like when you've broken on through to that second level of salvation, like you want people to know and you'll say, the Holy Spirit has told me that I've, I've, reached the, the, I've received the second work of grace and I've reached true holiness. And I've heard a story that a man stood up in church one time and told everyone, I think I've broken on through. I think I've reached true holiness. And his daughter-in-law stood up and said, no, that's not true. <laughs> but there are Christians who believe that. But when I read John, and I read Paul, and I read the rest of the New Testament, I don't see that. I don't see them talking about that. I see them being very aware that sinners, though forgiven, that sinners, though on a trajectory that is taking them toward more godliness, are still prone to sin. This side of eternity, this side of our glorification, our sanctification can be an up and down and bumpy road. And John's very much acknowledging that here. You see... Sometimes we're, we're kind of like these, these Gnostics, these, these proto-Gnostics. Um, we have an injury, but we don't want to admit it. Uh, I have a friend who's a physician's assistant. I love doctor stories because I find them fascinating. Um, I'm morbid in that way. She's a physician's assistant, and she was telling a story about a patient who came into her office, and he told her that his leg had been bothering him a little bit, but not a lot. And he had on a pair of pants. She couldn't really see what was going on with his leg. And she said, well, what what happened? He said, well, about four days ago, I was burning something in the backyard, and I fell in the fire, and I burned my leg. But it doesn't really hurt. Um, So I think it's okay, but I really, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. I need you to to look at it. So he pulls up his pant leg, and he has second and third degree burns all up and down his shin. And uh, the fire had burned the nerves, and he couldn't feel anything. And it had become gangrenous. And he was going to lose his leg because it had been four days with no, no treatment whatsoever. You see, we're, sometimes that's us, right? We think, well, I, don't, I feel fine. Everything is going okay. So I really must be fine. I'm, I'm not a bad person. I, I see bad people all around me. I'm not one of them. We're, we're a bit like the Black Knight um, and the Monty Python uh, hit, you know? your arms are cut off, your legs are cut off, come back here, Tis merely a flesh wound. Right? No, it's not. No, it's not. Our sin nature is a mortal wound. The game is over for us. It's over without Christ. It's over. And these guys were pretending that they had no sin and everything was fine. And John's response to them is, that is a self-deception. You're lying to yourself and you'll bring, des- you'll bring nothing but destruction on yourself when you do that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John assumes that good, godly believers are going to sin. He assumes it. And he's reminding us, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just. He's faithful to the promises he gave to Christ, that whoever he gives to Christ will never fall away. He's faithful to the promises he gave to us. That because of the blood of Christ, we are forgiven no matter what. And he's just. He's just. Now that seems like an odd thing to say here, doesn't it? Uh, because normally we think of just as punishment. Because what we see is that God doesn't just excuse sin. He isn't just saying, oh, it's okay, it'll all be fine. No. There had to be justice. Uh, my favorite TV show of all time, Breaking Bad. I promise it's biblical. It's <laughs> biblical. If you're not familiar with Breaking Bad, I'll give you a brief synopsis. There is a guy named Walt. Walt is a high school chemistry teacher. He comes down with cancer. I'm going to talk fast when I get through it. He comes down with cancer. He has to take care of his family. He decides he understands the chemistry, so he's going to become a meth cook. And it turns out he's a really good meth cook. But he needs someone to help him with distribution. So he goes and finds this kid off the street who he used to teach high school chemistry named Jesse. And Jesse's a low-level drug dealer, and he brings Jesse in. And at some point, they get tangled up with a big drug dealer named Gustavo. And Gustavo's bad news, Gus. And Gus decides that he doesn't like Walt, and he's going to bring in another cooker. And I think the other cooker's name was Bruce, but I'm not certain. He brings in the other cooker, and Walt realizes that he's training this other cooker to replace him. And in that business, you don't get a pink slip when you're getting replaced. You get a bullet in the head. So it's either Walt or it's this guy. So he convinces Jesse to kill this guy, and Jesse does. He shoots him, shoots him and kills him. And this really messes with Jesse. Because Jesse, while he was a low-level drug dealer, he wasn't violent. But he did it anyway. And he's so messed up about it, he goes to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And he's looking for some sort of redemption. And he's sitting in this Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And the facilitator of the group is saying, you just have to love yourself. You just have to forgive yourself for all the bad things you've done. You just have to learn to embrace who you are. And you move forward. And Jesse using a few choice words, says, I don't believe that. And he always used the metaphor of, I shot a dog. He said, I shot this guy's dog. I shot him in the head without remorse and without compassion. And I killed this guy's dog. And I hurt people. And somebody has to pay for what I've done. I can't just say it was okay because it really wasn't okay. And you can't just tell me to embrace myself because someone has to pay. It was beautiful and true. And this is exactly the point we see with Christ. God is not saying, let's all just love ourselves and embrace ourselves. No. His forgiveness is faithful, but it's just. And Jesus Christ took that punishment because somebody had to pay. And he took it for us so that we didn't have to. And so John's reminder to the people is, if you confess, the work that provides your forgiveness is already done. Confess. And you'll be forgiven. And again, he says, you'll be cleansed from all unrighteousness. The third lie. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, a little bit different usage of the word sin. This is talking about the actual acts that we do. The things that we do. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. This particular lie is actually defaming God's character. Because we know, because we've let the light shine in, that God has shown us what righteousness is. He's shown us what goodness is. And when we say we haven't sinned, we're making God out to be a liar, because He has very clearly said that we are. And so they're defaming the very character and the Word of God by claiming that they've never committed any sins. We may concede in theory that sin would break our fellowship with God if we did sin, and that sin does exist in our nature as an inborn disposition. And yet we could still deny that we have in practice sinned and thus put ourselves out of fellowship with God. This is the most blatant of the three denials. These false teachers could admit that they have a sin nature. They could admit uh, all the other parts of it and still say, but we've never actually done anything wrong. And that is the most blatant of the three lies. And so John is, is bringing all this out not just because he wants to nitpick about the finer points of theology. He has already said that the way we view sin and the way we view grace and forgiveness and confession has a direct effect on our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another. Has a direct effect. This is real life stuff. This is where the rubber meets the road and how we actually work together. And he actually wants his readers to live righteously. We talk a lot here, and I'm glad we do. We talk a lot about grace and about forgiveness and about God's boundless and, 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 and endless forgiveness for us. And we're never going to stop talking about that. But the fact remains that when we are recipients of that one-way love that God gives us, it transforms us. And it should be making us into people who show two-way love, who reflect that love out to others, back to God and out to others. It actually will be changing us. Um, And so how do we know? Like John wants to tell them, how do you know you're actually walking in the light? Because you can imagine at this point, he's talking about light and darkness. If we say we have no sin, you you lie. And I imagine his audience is getting a little bit nervous. His hearers are, are nervous about their own spiritual condition. And so he gives them two tests, two tests. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Notice his argument here. He isn't saying, you've been forgiven, therefore go work harder to follow Jesus. What he's saying is if you're walking in the light, and allowing Christ's light to shine into your life, and you are confessing and bringing all that shameful stuff up, it will produce in you the kind of person that actually looks like Jesus. That it's a work that's being done on you, not a work that you are achieving. And so, just as our justification is received, not achieved, so our sanctification, our ongoing process of growing in Christ, is received and not achieved. If you're walking in the light, it will create in you a person who actually begins to look more like Jesus. Now, we live in in the in-between time where sometimes we look really like Jesus and sometimes we really don't. And sometimes we get discouraged because we know that we're failures. Sometimes we look at other people and we think, they're doing a pretty good job. Sometimes we look at other people and we say, well, they're doing a pretty bad job. And we're doing better than them. And then we feel good about ourselves. But the fact is, we should always... Just be looking to Christ, just be looking to his righteousness, and just be looking to his forgiveness. And so that first, uh, that first test is that if we are truly walking in the light, we'll be a confessing kind of people, we'll be a repenting kind of people, and that will affect how we interact with God, it will affect how we interact with one another, and it will change who we are. It will make us a different kind of person. The second test is a social test connected to the first. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Here's the thing. I don't want you to leave here tonight... And think that I'm telling any of you that you're walking in darkness. I don't think that. And John doesn't think that about his, about his hearers. He's saying to them, I am writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. If you're here tonight because you need the mercy of Christ, that means the light's in your life. And you're doing okay. And Christ is bringing you along. And you don't need to worry that somehow you're lost because you sinned today. You're okay. The light is in you. The light is working. But there is a test. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. See, John is the same disciple who in his gospel recorded Jesus saying, they will know you are my disciples by how you love. And he's bringing that same concept here, that Christians need to be known as people who love others. And this isn't an easy love, because Jesus actually fills this idea of love with with three new sort of emphases. The first new emphases uh, is that he takes the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, Ten Prohibitions, And he turns them into two positive exhortations. Love God and love your neighbor. He changes the emphasis of the law from rule following to the condition of your heart as it relates to God and as it relates to other people. And doing that will in fact make you a holy person. You will in fact obey the law if you love God and love your neighbor. He also changes the quality of the love. It's not a convenient love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that's willing to die for someone else it 's a love that 's willing to be inconvenienced for someone else. This is the type of love that the love of, that the, that Christ should be instilling in us, and the third is that it changes the extent of love it 's no longer just love your friends it 's love your enemies. love even the people that hate you. Uh, when we walk in the light, we become those kind of people people who love God and love others people who Love sacrificially and people who love their enemies. And I have to tell you, those people terrify me. (laughs) They terrify me because that's dangerous. Love your enemies in this climate with terrorists who could be coming into our country. Love your enemies is dangerous talk, could get someone killed. Love sacrificially, what about my own kids? What about my retirement? What about the the security of my home? I I have to tell you, I'll say this because, you know, I'm a curmudgeon. I'm like Pittsburgh dad in Grove City. I'm like this guy who's grumpy. Like, there are a lot of children in my neighborhood. And it's not unusual for, like, random children to just walk into our house. It happens all the time. Like, who are you and why are you pulling on my cat's tail? I don't know you. Um, This happens all the time. And I think I'm really convinced that God has put, like, neighborhood children into my life so that I will become more like Christ. Like, this is my trial. They're all like four feet tall. And there's a lot of them. They're like leprechauns who magically appear. Um, I'm really not kidding. I could tell stories. We were in our basement one time, and a kid just magically appeared in our basement. We don't know how he got there. They look in the window. One night, I felt the presence of a kid. I'm, see, I, I'm, I'm totally off script now. I, I, I felt the presence of a child behind my head, out the front window. And I looked, and there was a kid at, like looking in the window, but he couldn't see me. So I sat really still. And he went away. I've <laughs> are... totally messed this sermon up. Um, listen, we laugh, because you know what I'm talking about. Love is actually really hard. To be like Christ is actually really hard. And yet... When we let the light shine in and we confess, it will change who we are. It will make us more like Christ. It will. It will. And I think you know that's true. I think you know that's true. And I'm going to leave you where where John leaves his hearers. He leaves them with a positive note. That he is talking about false teachers who are saying things that are untrue and destructive. But he knows that that is not his people. And so he says this to them. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. He speaks these truths as if they have already happened. You have overcome the evil one. You know the one who is from the beginning. You know the Father. You know your sins are forgiven. It is true. It is fact. The only thing left for us to do is to be where Jesus is. To walk in the light and let him do the work in us. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.